0: Okay then, so once again if you can get where you can see me, I'm not going to use a flip chart this time. So any other questions that have uh, bubbled up in the tea break that you want to ask? And then what I want to do is explain how to use the book a bit more and then set our home practice for this week. I keep tempting to say homework but I've been told not to say homework because then nobody wants to do it. Sorry. Who said that? <laughs> I quite like homework. <laughs> but. Anyway. No questions. Okay, so just just to sort of talk you through the book a little bit, um, I for, forgot to bring it earlier. On that's the book. If you haven't got it. Oh yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Do. Oh yes. Yes. I hope so. Um, that's right, I was, wasn't I? Yeah. <coughs> as you, <laughs> I'm afraid I talk, out. I think out loud. I'm, I'm an extrovert in that sense. So I, so I say things, and I think, yeah, what do I mean? How interesting. <laughs> and I do that when I write as well, which is disastrous. That's why it's taken so long to write, to, to write it. But yes, the mind has depth, doesn't it? Um, one of the things that Buddhism teaches us so clearly is that the mind has depth. That you have ordinary consciousness, Waking consciousness. You have preparatory consciousness. You know that moment when you you think, "Oh, I'm meditating now, aren't I?" You're still distracted, but you think, but you you are meditating now. You're doing something now. Until then, you were just in a tumble dryer, weren't you? <coughs> With a fifty pence piece going around you, after you. But there comes a moment, doesn't there, in meditation where you're meditating now. Well, that's preparatory consciousness. It's a new kind of consciousness where you're actually kind of here. Before that, you were somewhere else. Suddenly you're kind of here. And then you can get really absorbed in being kind of here, and your mind goes deeper. And the more you get absorbed in being here, your mind goes deeper and deeper. So what struck me was a thought you can have in ordinary consciousness, such as all things change, uh, which has no effect on you at all. Even the thought you're going to die has no effect really on you at all. You just know it with the top two inches of your mind. But in the depths of meditation, a thought like that can profoundly affect your whole state of mind, can profoundly touch your emotion. And that's because you're in a deeper state of mind. Yeah. So it seems to me, this is, I don't know, Rana Gunnar knows more about philosophy than I do, but it seems to me this has been lost in the West. We, we think there's just ordinary mind. So when we think about reality, we just think about thinking about it. Schopenhauer thinks about it wonderfully, other Western philosophers think about it. I mean, it's incredible what they thought about it in a way. But there's no conception that there is, another, there is other minds apart from ordinary mind. Um, there's dhyana, there's you know, whole other levels of mind that the West hasn't been very good at uh, revealing. So often when we're talking about mind, we're, we're thinking of a kind of horizontal mind, a mind that proliferates horizontally. But you know, you only have to go on a meditation retreat, you only have to do a mindfulness of breathing and get a little tiny bit absorbed, and you open your eyes and the world looks a bit different, doesn't it? From that deeper mind. I mean, I can tell when my meditation has gone deeper, not because I particularly particularly feel different, although I probably do, but I immediately notice that things look more beautiful. Um, On retreat, you know, I step out of the shrine room, and it's not just that things look more beautiful, it's almost as if beauty has come towards me a bit. That's how I experience it. So the trees, which were just trees, suddenly step towards me and become living uh, think, uh, living realities that are connected with me in a new way. Um, the, the light suddenly becomes almost um, a kind of presence. So I, I notice that I've got deeper in my mind by noticing how the world looks. Yeah. So I think that's really important that the mind has depth and that... Depending on where we think about something, in what state of mind we think about it, changes how we think about it. So one of the the things we need to be really careful of when we're mindful is the kind of thoughts we're having. And you can ask yourself, would I think differently about this in a different state of mind? So when you're in a negative state of mind, your mind goes into a search and destroy mode, doesn't it? So what you do is your mind looks for the problem and tries to destroy it. And there's real value in that, actually. Um, but in that kind of search and destroy mode of mind, you're not very creative, you're not very able to take imaginative leaps, you're not able to synthesise things very well and see beyond the obvious. But in a deeper, more creative mind, and a happier state of mind, you can think about it in quite a different way. So it's really worth bearing that in mind, yeah. that the mind has depth. Let me just talk about the, uh, the body having depth as well, because I think this is gets forgotten at the same time. Um... And I started to think about this because of something Schopenhauer said about the mind and body. So he thought that your body was the objective element of your mind. He said that um, it's the other side of the same coin. He used the example of blushing. That when you blush, when you feel embarrassed, you blush at the same time as you feel embarrassed. You don't have a mind state called embarrassment and then your body responds by blushing. The two exist at the same moment. So he said that mind and body are two sides of the same thing. The body is a concretized version of the mind. Very interesting, in meditation when you notice how you're holding on to your body, what you're holding on to your body with is your mind. So you look at how people walk, everyone walks in a different way, everyone moves in a different way, and that's all held by their mind. So interestingly, when, when you release the body, you do start to release the mind. But in my experience of meditation, and in many people's experience of meditation, again the body has depth, and this is something I hadn't thought about before I wrote the book. But um, you can—the the body starts to. Um, well, I, for instance, had memories coming out of the body, very strong memories coming out of the body. Um, I never take that literally. I think people do take it too literally, but I have certainly experienced that. I've experienced kind of symbolic teachings coming out of the body. Uh, I remember one an intensive meditation retreat I did very, when I was very new. Perhaps it, these things tend to happen more when you're new to things. And uh, I'd had this conversation with someone. And I'd, I'd, in my life I've always had this sort of question, am I a good person or a bad person? Sometimes I think I'm a good person and I think I'm a bad person. And I'd had this conversation and it, it evoked that kind of ruminative thought. And then I somehow seemed to have a bit of an insight into it. And I had this vision of all these flames bursting out of my back and somebody writing on my back saying, I am not bad. And, you know, I didn't make it up. Um, it just it was like a spontaneous response from my body. It seemed to come out of my body in the depth of meditation. So when your mind goes deeper, your body goes deeper. So you can start to have some opportunities, different experiences of your body. Your hands get very large. A friend of mine once said, Fauci was meditating upside down. Um, there's a, con- a connection. Body and mind aren't these separate things. The body's not like a car that you're driving. Um, so to go deeper in the body, also me- mind, goes, you go deeper in the, in the body. Uh, again, I think that's not su- sufficiently appreciated. That your sense of the body can become radically different. Yeah? Eventually, your sense of the body tends to disappear, really. It becomes too uh, gross in a certain sense. But anyway, that was my, my thoughts about uh, a deeper body when you mentioned about um, depth of mind you maybe talked about the positive aspect but I've, um, I haven't been meditating for that long back here and there were a couple of occasions where um, you know, a reality that wasn't so pleasant yeah. and it was hitting yeah, the flashes back, yeah. and actually in a physical sense as well so yeah like a Mm, mm And I just wasn't quite sure what, happened, what to do with that, you know, which is what you're explaining aside yeah. a bit bigger, mm. Well, I've certainly had that as well. Can kind of get a um. reality that's a bit unpleasant, yeah? A bit closer. Yes, yes, that's right. Meditation. Do you mean reality from your own past or reality in the capital R? You know, sort of but to do with your own sort of personal past. Yes. I mean, that's what I notice often in my meditation. Like, I've just come back from a meditation retreat, and I noticed every time I got a bit concentrated, I had all these memories of my past, sometimes incredibly vivid, um, not necessarily traumatic, just all these memories of the garden when I was, it was tiny. About it was about uh-huh. it was about a health thing. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. It's like the reality of it. Yeah, flashes up. Just yes, that's right, yeah. It. Yeah. Yes. No, no, I know what you mean. I mean the, the thing to the first thing to say about it is that meditation will confront you with yourself. If if you want to escape yourself, then don't meditate, go and see a film. Uh, you know, meditation will confront you with yourself. That's that's what it does. Um, the question is how you respond to that. Uh, if you can respond creatively and kindly, then that's great. If you respond to creating more narrative around it, that's difficult. Um, We have to be very careful by how we respond to difficult experience, I think. I've been thinking about this more and more. um, We can hypnotise ourselves into making difficult experiences worse, Um, it seems to me anyway. And how do we experience difficult feelings, stay with the Vedana as that, without without creating more of them in in a certain sort of way? should think of an example but I can't think of it. Hmm. I haven't known. <laughs> <laughs> Let me try and think of an example. It'll come up in a minute. Manakuna, <laughs> can you think of an example? I think better, you might need to be a bit more explicit, if you please. Okay. Yeah, I've just been a in, in a year ago, I was starting it with uh, the next... Oh yes, uh, oh. Yeah. oh, oh. Yes, I bet, yeah. I had that diagnosis yeah. on board, but mm. I found whilst meditating on a few occasions that the kind of the reality of it I know, yes. has kind of hit a bit deeper. Yes, that's right. And I felt it on a very physical level. That's way, right, yeah. That, that, that kind of acknowledging. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. See, I wouldn't give any one answer to that. In a certain sense, I think it depends. So, one of the things I experienced, nothing like your experience, but a little time, my own tiny experience. I was on a solitary retreat, and I had to get tinnitus, and uh, I was meditating a lot, and I it, it got seemed to get worse, and I just got this terrible fear. It would just get worse and worse. It would keep me awake. Um, and What I noticed is that fear narrative kind of fills the universe, doesn't it, in a second. One moment it's not there, and the next moment it just sort of fills feels everything. And I just had to keep coming back to body awareness, keep coming back to relaxing, trying to... And gradually, gradually, the fear narrative quietened down. Um, it's like a jack-in-a-box, isn't it? It suddenly pops over... <gasps> And it you know, had my experience with it, like it fills the universe with narrative. What's going to happen in the future? Oh no, I'm careering towards the future, and so on. And uh, I just had to be keep coming back to just quietening down and so on, softening my face, softening my shoulders. Sometimes, however, I think it's best to distract yourself, depending. Uh, I'm, I'm not against distraction, if you see what I mean. I think it depends what you distract yourself with that's important. Uh, But sometimes you know that you're not in the state to be able to usefully use this, if you see what I mean. And you'd be better off trying to put your mind somewhere else. I know Ratnaguna's done lots of courses around these kind of issues, and I think a lot of that is very, very valuable indeed. But I don't think there's one answer. Myself, anyway, I don't know what you think, Ratnaguna, but it depends on where you are. It depends what works in the moment. Sometimes... yeah. Well, that's what I did. I just think, okay, because it's horrible, isn't it? That awful fear sort of burns up like this, like a fire. And I just think, okay, so, and I was sweating at the time, and I was thinking, okay, so just soften my eyes and soften my mouth, and can I relax my jaw? And I'd relax, and, ah, and it would come back. And then I'd think, oh, no, stop thinking about it, and then that would make it worse, of course. Oh, no, don't think about it, don't think about it. Just ignore it, ignore it, and that would make it worse. So I had to keep doing that again and again, being incredibly kind sort of gentle, really. And gradually, gradually, I entered a new state where the tinnitus was still there, but I was in a deeper mind state, so it didn't it didn't provoke that awful kind of fear reaction. Yeah, but that's one way of working with it, anyway. Hmm. Okay, should we, should we go on to how to use the book? So, um, the idea of this book is to explore um, day-to-day mindf- well, mindfulness for the next eight weeks. Yeah? So, you'll be able to be helped by doing that, by coming to this class for the next eight weeks. And um, what I've done, in the one of the things I've said is, I'm actually not, to be honest, I'm not absolutely keen on these kind of books. <laughs> I mean, it's marvellous. Um, but I don't like books that tell me what to do. Um, I don't like anyone trying to improve me. Uh, I usually react if people try and improve me. Uh, and I'm trying to improve you through the pages of this. So I, because I'm very sensitive to that, I've been very sensitive to that in the book. So one thing I've said, for instance, is you can read this without doing any of it. That's what you do with most books, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, recently I've been reading a book about how to write... In, Poetry and how to write in you know, a bit pentameter, how to write a villanelle and all that sort of thing. And every, t- every time you read about something, it says, now here's the exercises. Don't read the next chapter until you do these exercises. So all that happened is I just stopped reading it. You know, I tried it a few, it just didn't have any time. So it would be a real shame if that happened when you read this, that you could just read it like a book. It's a book. <laughs> um, books don't usually try and tell you to do something in the morning, do they? They just say, you just read them. That's all you do. So you can do that. Or you can just do bits of what I suggest. I tend to suggest a, a lot of things in the book that you might try. I try to be as practical and, and sensible as possible. Um, so you might find that some of the things help you, some of the things don't help you. Uh, so just take it sort of sensibly. Don't. Some people are over-earnest, I think, and too fastidious, and think they have to do every single thing. And then it all just becomes another big thing you have to do. You have to work, you have to have fun, and you have to do this, <coughs> really fill out this whole book, drives you mad. So don't feel that you have to do all the things. Yeah? If you can do it, it's really, really useful. When I've taught this course, we run the course at the LBC, I do the course myself, and it's really, I teach myself, oh, that's very interesting, mm-hmm. I'll try that, and uh, it actually has a really good effect. I forget it's me. Want to? oh, I do so I'll try that. LAUGHTER um, You can teach yourself. It's most peculiar. It's sort of not quite you anymore. Anyway, that's another matter. So what you've got here is, as as the course, it starts with day-to-day mindfulness, and I'll set some, what I suggest you do for this week on that. And if you look at page, what is it, uh, week one, uh, which is page 43, the practice review. So what I suggest, so I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll guide you through these in a minute, but at the start, just now, tomorrow or today, you might fill in the first column, your two commitments for the week, and then you review how it went. So what I've been suggesting when I run the course is you come to the class quarter of an hour early, and you fill in your week review then. So that's, you fill that page in, Then the next page uh, about reducing input, you write about that, And then you write about mastering and completing cycles. I'll tell you what all this is in a minute. And then, so you basically review how your week of mindfulness has gone before the class. So I suggest you come a bit early, you have tea together, and write. That's why it's got all these places to write in. All been carefully designed. So what happens is, as as the course progresses, you then get introduced to a mindful walk, for instance. So I suggest you... Do a mindful walk every day. I suggest it's a walk that you already do, so you might think, "How?" Hey, ah, but I cycle, so you then think, "Oh, okay. How? How can you can turn the first ten minutes or fifteen minutes of your cycle ride into a mindful cycle ride?" Um, as the as the course goes on, I introduce a mindful moment. So it might be uh, when you get out of the shower each day. It might be brushing your teeth. It might be the first time you turn on your computer, and I try to use that as a cue for mindfulness. As the course goes on, I introduce meditation and I introduce meditation more and more. So eventually, by the time you get, I don't know quite where it is now, I haven't read it for a while, (laughs) Uh, by the time you get to think to week three, you also have a day-to-day guide to mindfulness. Let me see if I can find one. Um, Let's look at that. So if you turn to page 139... So that tells you, okay, here we go. This this um, this is, introduces you to this week's meditate. This week worth of meditation, and then you literally get seven days of guidance in meditation. Uh, there's a day one is building up mindfulness. Day two working directly within a narrative. Day three awareness of distraction, then letting go of an helpful narrative. Letting go, breathing and thinking, meeting needs. So it gives you a day-to-day guide to your meditation. Um, this is not all me, by any means. Some of it's Sona, uh, some of it's all kinds of meditation teachers I've listened to and learnt from. But it's a very useful way of giving you new approaches to, my, to your daily meditation. And what I suggest you do is that you put a cross against that day if you didn't do it. Yeah? And, that, and that you can do that with all the things in the book. So not just to tie yourself off, um, but so you can come back to that afterwards, yeah? And then basically, the course just gradually develops like that. You go through mind do, mind, bringing the teachings to mind, then you have mindfulness of nature and art, mindfulness of other people, and you const- and you keep reviewing how it went. You have daily meditations, a daily mindfulness walk, and so on. So if you were to do it completely, it's a really intensive mindfulness course. One of the things I've tried to do is integrate some of the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, the CBT, the mindfulness base cognitive therapy that we're doing at the London Buddhist Centre and uh, that you're doing here uh, in Breathworks, I try to integrate some of that with some of the work of positive psychologists and try to put that in a a Buddhist context. And so it takes you right up to mindfulness of reality itself, uh, trying to cultivate insight. And all the way through you can can write in the book. And there's even at the end an end of course review and a suggestion that you can do that online and they'll send me your end of course review so I can see how you got on with it. Yeah. So it's very now, <coughs> it's very now, it's very this minute, it's very 2009. Um, okay, so in the few minutes left I want to just introduce how we might practice this week. Um, this has been an, uh, the usual start, I would have focused on this throughout the night probably, but so the three things I'm suggesting that you could do this week. So this is day-to-day mindfulness. Yeah? Day-to-day mindfulness. Um, so the first thing is think about, do you have sustaining routines in your life? Yeah, do you have sustaining routines in your life? One of the important ways of keeping in a positive state of mind is making sure you have some kind of routine to your life. If you don't have routine to your life, you often uh, don't use your time terribly well. Of course, there's dangers to routines. You can overstuff them. Uh, but you need sustaining routines in your life. So you might think this week, what does your the shape of your life look like? Is it very ad hoc? Um, do you keep on not quite doing the things you want to do? So do you keep meaning to go to the gym or go swimming, but not quite managing to do it? Do you uh, find that you're out every night? Wouldn't it be a good idea to have a routine of having a one night where you're not out uh, every night um, that sort of thing what is the shape of your life are you burning the candle at both ends are you doing too many self-improving things um, do, you need to do, do you need to have a bit more innocent pleasure in your life yeah? so have a think this week about um, what kind of routines you might need to cultivate mindfulness yeah so many times it's just we forget. Oh, and we need to just put, say, okay, on that time every week I go swimming. Something like that. Um, so th- have a think about whether you have sustaining routines in your life. And what I'm suggesting is that you think of, what am I saying? Um, yeah, that you think of some sustaining routines that you could actually put into, I've suggested, that's right, two commitments. Um, two resolutions, Yeah. And then uh, next week when you come to the class, you can then review how that's gone. So you decide, OK, I'm going to go swimming twice a week. So did you actually manage to do this? If you didn't, why not? What were the issues? Or say you decided to have an evening where you didn't do anything at all, you just sat and read. If you didn't, why not? Was it your flatmates you know, start to think about your, the shape of your life? Yeah? The other, my other suggestion for day-to-day mindfulness is if you reduce input. Yeah. one of the really striking things about modern life is how complex it is how much input we have I was, was teaching at a, a big consultancy firm in central London and this woman was saying that they have in the place she used to work they had televisions on the back of the toilet doors um, so that you could keep uh, uh, abreast of the market all the time so you could go to the loo and still see what was happening to the FTSE index yeah? uh, I noticed lifts increasingly have uh, music or even televisions and so forth. Buses now in London, they have advert, television adverts. So we're increasingly bombarded by stimulus. So one of the simple things we could do to create mindfulness is to reduce input. So you might decide, for instance, okay, I'm not going to uh, log on after 10 o'clock. What's very tempting is you keep on, the, on doing your emails until 11 o'clock, then you can't sleep because you're over-simulated. Yeah? Um you might decide that uh, you'll just do one thing at a time. So, for instance, one of the things that is suggested is that when you go to work, you don't do your emails straight away because emails don't need you to think. So if you're not careful, you just do the either thing. You just do all your emails, but you le- it leaves you feeling a bit like you haven't done anything. So you might say, OK, the first hour at work, I'm just going to do that one job that I need to do without looking at websites at the same time and without checking my emails at the same time. I'm just going to try and... Get that one job done. Actually, that comes on to the next thing I want to talk about. But. So try to reduce your import. Try not to keep... Try to resist channel flipping on television. If you're going to watch television, see so if you can just watch one thing, don't flip channels. So you might try to not eat and watch television at the same time. Uh, you might try all kinds of things to reduce import. Yeah? So try to think of some ways in which you could reduce import and then again review that at the end of the week. Um, I think that's one of the most important things that we could try is to reduce our input Uh, just so that we can start to notice things in a more subtle and nuanced way. One of the things that I've talked about in the book is uh, the effect of video games. I think a hundred years from now people might think of some of the things that we're doing now in the same way as we think about skin cancer. So my partner's father died of skin cancer and he was telling me that um, of course when he was young there was no notion of it and they used to go in, this is in New Zealand they'd lie out in the sun and cover themselves with olive oil and just fry in the sun. Now no one would do that now because we know the dangers of that and there could be similar things happening to our mind that we don't know the dangers of yet. So there's been quite a lot of research into obviously into the effect of computer games violent computer games and there's, some of the research seems to show that children who use them have a less have a less sympathetic response, have a less, are less disturbed by actual violence than people who don't use them, the children that don't use them. Of course, research, that research is very contested. But if it's true, or even partly true, it's really worrying. Uh, uh, is are taught by using computer games. Yeah? So we need to really think about how what we're putting into our mind affects our mind. Yeah? So one of the things we might do is not play computer games or... or so on. So see if you can reduce input this week. Try and decide how you might do that and write it in your book on on the bus home or tomorrow in your tea break. Try to decide how you're going to practice reducing input and then next week when you come write how it went. The third area I'm suggesting is cultivate mastery. So mastery is when you is that pleasant feeling of having done something. So it's when you do that DIY that you've been waiting around for ages. It's the time you make the phone call that you've been putting off. It's when you manage to write this document that you've been kind of trying to get around. Yeah? So the feeling of mastery is where you've done something. You've risen to a challenge, you've been able to do something. And it's one of the essential bases for well-being is a, is a feeling of mastery that you've, that you've been able to do something. Yeah. Um, So, for instance, if you're feeling overwhelmed with work, one of the simple things you can do is write a quick list of to-do things and do the three things on that list you can do immediately. So, for instance, you could top up your credit on your phone, you could put your washing in the washing machine, and you can, I don't know, send that postcard. Do the three things that you don't need to do any preparation for, that you can just do now. And that will make you start to feel a bit better, like you're a bit more in control, and that will help you start to do more complex tasks. Yeah? So one thing you can do is cultivate mastery, and that's, that's what I was going to use that example of emails for. Because if you just do your emails in the morning, you end up with that horrible feeling, you know, that crumbly feeling, that you've been doing lots of stuff, but you can't think for the life of you what you've done. If someone said, what have you done this morning, you can't really remember. You sent an email to them, you rang them, and then they weren't there, so you had to leave a message... You couldn't, before you rang the other person, you couldn't say to them because you haven't yet spoken to them. You emailed somebody and then got an out-of-office email. And that could take the whole morning. So you try to do... All day, yeah. All week. (laughs) You get any emails. That's right, yeah. Well, so you then try and do something that you can actually get a sense of mastery. So what that can do is undermine any sense of mastery, that you've done anything. It has a horrible kind of internal effect. Yeah. So try to think of things that cultivate a sense of mastery, that give you that sense of accomplishment. And that can be really slight. It doesn't need to be very big. Particularly if you're busy. Um, like one of the things I do, because I work at home, I just, I get a bit overwhelmed with work. Sometimes you're like the proverbial donkey, aren't you? Surrounded by pails of, piles of hay. And you just don't know which one to nibble first. And you get kind of stuck. Does a metaphor work for you? Uh, <laughs> um, So you just do one. So you know you just go and put your your clothes in the washing machine. At least you know you've done that now. And you start to get a sense of mastery. So one thing you can do this week is try to do things that cultivate a sense of mastery. So you can read all about those three things in the first week. You can write down what you're going to do. So this is all just creating a basis so that we can practice mindfulness. Because you're not going to be able to practice mindfulness if you have the horrible crumbly feeling that you've been on emails all day and done nothing. You won't be able to do it if you're constantly watching the television and eating a hot dog and trying to have a conversation at the same time. These are all just necessarily preliminaries to mindfulness in a sense, but surprisingly difficult to practice. It's amazing how much irritation you can create by forgetting your keys, uh, not getting your ticket, all kinds of things can set off so much irritation. So see if you can think about the places in your life that flash irritation. Is that because you've not cultivated day-to-day mindfulness? Do you need to check before you leave the house that you've got your Oyster card and your keys and your mobile phone and your documents for that day? Could you do that the night before? Would that make it easier? Check um, those things that flash up and irritate you and try and see if the issue is lack of day-to-day mindfulness. Surprisingly difficult to practice Um, So that's what I'm suggesting is that you practice in those three ways for this week and really see whether you can do that and then come to next week a bit early and write how it went. And then that can be a basis for discussing how you're practicing mindfulness. My idea of this course when I lead it at the LBC is the absolute opposite to our usual classes. What we normally do, people come along and we kind of top them up with meditation and mindfulness send them out, and that blah, 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 runs out, and they come up and they tap them up with mindfulness and meditation again. And that's how we relate, don't we, in a sense. This idea is saying, okay, your practices in the week. What we're going to use a class for is to see how you got on with that and see how you're going to practice next week. We're not going to top you up. We want to see what were the issues were in day-to-day mindfulness. Okay, so you, didn't, you weren't able to reduce input. What were the issues? How can you work with that? Did it work for you not reducing it? Exploring that and then say, okay, next week we're going to be cultivating mindfulness of the body. So what are the issues that are going to be there? We're going to start doing this mindful walk. So what, what might happen when you try to do that? And someone says, well, I cycle, so how are we going to do that? And Well, sometimes I meet people when I go on a walk, my walk to the bus stop. How are we going to cope with that? Yeah? So I've been my idea for this class is that you use the class to think about how you practice mindfulness outside of the class. And that's what this is, a focus on the past and a focus on next week's practice of mindfulness. And the book will guide you through that in a step-by-step way. And it gradually increases. So I've tried to make it so you don't have to do anything particular or peculiar apart from doing your meditation every day. So I've tried to make it like you're just your life, so you're not having to do this special spiritual life You just go to work, you come home, you feed the cat, you buy cereals, all the sort of things, but you try to do that with mindfulness. Very easy to talk about and very surprisingly difficult to do. But my book will guide you safely to the other shore. (laughs) Okay. Any questions about that before we finish? Or have we heard enough? Yeah. How we don't do in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I like get the sense of Yeah. Um, does, well, we need to bring quite a bit of metal to that process, I think. Really. Yes, you do. You know, I yeah. mean, if you're the kind of person like I am um, who beats himself up if I do do these things, and it, it sort of gets worse. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, we just somehow need to bring a more um, loving attitude towards art, maybe. Yes, um, yes, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, as well as aware. Certainly not a harsh attitude. Mm-hmm. I slightly won- I've been slightly wondering about our language of kindly awareness because uh, it can suggest that there's something wrong that you need to be kindly about. Certainly you don't want to be harsh. But when you're in a positive state, you're not being kindly to yourself. You're not being anything to yourself. Um, so again, I use my little nieces as an example. When she's happily playing... And I say to her, how are you feeling? She just says, fine. As if, like, what, 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 what's that got to do with anything? When you're in a happy state, you don't have much feeling tone, generally. You're just, well, the psychological state, the word is flow. You're just flowing into experience. And absorbed in experience. When we, the, the, the problem of emotionalizing uh, experience is that we think, oh, we need to be, make sure we're having happy experience. And that means you stand back from it and say, am I happy? When you're actually happy, you don't do that. You forget, actually. You forget to check how you are. You see it so well with children. They don't step back and say, oh, I'm really enjoying this. You're not self-conscious in that way. So psychologists talk about this, as flow. And they say that if you look for emotion in that flow, even positive emotion, you'll kind of distract yourself from it. So that's, I think, an interesting rider to that. Certainly we shouldn't be, we must be careful not to be uh, unduly self-critical and quick to be self-critical and even predict that we'll do it wrong. That here I go again kind of scenario, that's really, really unhelpful. That kind of, yes, that's right, it is. Oh, I would do it. Oh, God, here's something else I can't do. I remember when I started meditating, I thought, I can't do this, I can't do this, and now I can't do meditating either. I've discovered something else I can't do. And that that's really, really for that kind of mindset. Maybe the extension to that is that if you shouldn't, almost uh, happiness is a lack, you want a lack of awareness to maintain the happiness, but if you're not happy and having kind a of notice, really, then you need the awareness in order to. That's right, you, should, you do. Should, that's right, yeah. So, you're, um, so it's asymmetric. Yeah. Yeah. It does. I mean Banti says that's the value of Banti ba- says that's the value of pain, spiritually speaking, is it makes you think. When you're a bit unhappy or a bit uncomfortable, at best, and not necessarily it'll make you think, and then you think, okay, I need to, what am I going to do? Why am I getting into this state? But when you're in a good state, you want to disappear. You know, when you're reading a really good novel, I have read this wonderful novel recently, I don't know whether everyone's read Penelope Fitzgerald, but I think she's a modern great. But her great novel is A Blue Flower, and I was reading it on solitary. And I just disappeared. Pew. I just disappeared. I wasn't there. And I was so happy. But if I'd thought, "Oh, I'm really enjoying this, pew, I appear again. And actually what I want to do is disappear. Uh, you disappear when you're very happy. Um, yeah. I think we better stop there. Yeah. I have to close up the sentence. Yes. my pleasure good thank you (laughs) nice to meet you good luck with the (laughs) cause